Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here today. I hope you're coming off a great week. And after now, we're coming off a great time of worship here at Colonial Heights. And I trust you're coming off a good time of worship out there in Midlothian. I tell you what, folks, we had a, a phenomenal week uh, this week down at the beach with our, our young people. As a matter of fact, I was kind of laughing. Uh, several people were talking, leaders were talking this week. Man, that, that, was, that was the best youth retreat we, we've ever had. You know, we say that every year. <laughs> it always feels like the best we've ever had. Of course, I guess that's better than coming off a week and saying, man, that was the worst week ever. Uh, but we, we did have just a phenomenal week. We got to see a half dozen or so young people make a, a profession of faith and follow the Lord in baptism. Uh, one particular situation, a little bit unique to our time down there, we had a, a young man join us that, that was not a part of the camp. Uh, that ended up making a, a profession of, Christ, of Christ, with Christ and what uh, was Muslim. And uh, he went and shared with his parents what he had done, and, and they allowed him. And, and uh, we had the opportunity one evening to see him follow the Lord in baptism. And boy, the young people really got excited as they kind of watched just how God worked in his life to, to bring that moment about. So it was, a, it was a great week. You know, as I'm coming off this week, uh, several months ago, as we were kind of looking at my return to work and to, and to preaching, we looked at the schedule and thought, this Sunday would be maybe a good Sunday not to preach since I would have uh, preached three messages uh, down at the at youth camp. And so I am stepping out of the pulpit today and James Ford, one of our pastors here, singles and discipleship pastor, is going to uh, be preaching uh, for me. He's going to continue in the series. Uh, he's going to pick up with James chapter 1 verse 2 here in just a moment. And then I'll be back in the pulpit next Sunday continuing that series. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm kind of excited to say this. Lord willing, uh, this, this is my last Sunday of pacing myself uh, getting back into the pulpit, uh, Lord willing, I, I plan on being in the pulpit pretty much through the rest of the year. I think I've got one or two Sundays out, but they're into the fall and winter. So uh, looking forward to picking that back up next week. But looking forward, aren't you, to hearing James Ford this morning. You welcome him. James, you come on now. Good morning. Greetings, friends. I thought it was mean for Randy to get up here and like make you think that you were going <laughs> to get a taste of the Han. Hopefully too many don't feel like they've been hit with the bait and switch, but we'll be continuing in James this morning. So you can turn to the book of James now. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But it's funny, last week Randy expressed his excitement to be able to finally start this series in James, which he had been excited about and tr trying to start different times and not been able to. Um, it's just funny because ironically, although the book is my namesake, Typically, the book of James hasn't been one of my favorite books of the Bible, and it's okay. You're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible, books that you gravitate toward. Uh, and if, if, if any of you have been reading the book of James along, uh, you know, it's a pretty simple book. Um, and just time out there for a second. We, we do encourage and we do want you to be reading along with this, this, this series in James. Uh, a reading plan that I like uh, for a book this size is if you read a chapter a day, starting chapter one on Monday and then read, you know, one Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, read the entire book on Saturday, it'll take you all of 20 minutes maybe to read that last day. And so you can tack that onto your devotional. Uh, you can make that your way of starting a devotional. But if you do that while we're teaching through these on Sunday, one, you'll have a day off, uh, but then also you'll be working through the book twice a week 
and then hearing us dig through it on, well, mostly Randy, all Randy, dig through it on Sunday. Uh, and you'll be surprised at how much the book will work itself into your heart, into your mind, how much the Holy Spirit will work uh, in that, and how much you will inadvertently memorize and just the power that that will work out in your life. So I encourage you to be reading along. But if you have been reading or you are familiar with the book of James, you know, it's, it's a fairly simple book. It's a fairly straightforward book. I mean, Randy, to paraphrase Randy from last week, he told us that James is a, is a pretty thuggy guy. I mean, he just says what's on his mind. I mean, he's going to come at you and say, hey, you, you need to stop doubting. You need to thrive in trials. You need to stop boasting your riches. Maybe you shouldn't be a teacher. And you're just like, whoa, chill out. I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple, straightforward book, but it's a good book for me because there are some books that you can kind of uh, swim around in and feel like you, you never hit the bottom of, but you hit the bottom of James pretty quick and it kind of hurts a little bit, but it reminds you that the nature of the faith, the nature of the kingdom is not just being a hearer of the word, it's being a doer of the word, which he's going to say explicitly. But that's a good word for me, for us, who can be sometimes just professional hearers of the word. And we're all about the next big Bible study. We're all about, you know, who the next big Bible study leader is. And we just want to hear a better word, better teaching, better preaching. And we can be so adamant about that, but we forget And sometimes let our hearing of the word drastically outpace our doing of the word. And so it's it's important to keep those things in balance. One day you're going to have a conversation with the Lord about how much word you heard and how much word you did. And you want those two things to be about as close as possible. I did what I heard. Not I heard and I heard and I heard and I heard. And I thought I was doing just because I was hearing. I thought the the hearing was the doing. So James is is an important reminder because I might look at James and say, you know what? I got your book pretty figured out. I mean, simple. Look, thrive in trials. Uh, you know, you need to pray. Don't, don't boast in riches. You know, you need to watch your mouth. But James looks back at me and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my book is pretty simple. So that taming of the tongue thing, how's that going? <laughs> Keep reading, you know. And so it, it's a good reminder that we need to be doing what we see, even when it's a simple word, especially if it's a simple word that we will be held accountable for. But I also say all of that to say that sometimes I feel a bit silly teaching from a book like James. You know, James is going to run up on you in chapter 3, and he, I mean, he's going to, he's going to t- give you the point. He's going to explain his point. He's going to illustrate his point. It's going to come at you. Look, nobody can tame their mouth. You need to tame the tongue. You know, the tongue, it's like a, it's like a horse. It's like a fire. It's like a ship. You need to watch what you say. It's, okay, okay, okay. But then it feels silly for me to come in and say, all right, well, let me explain what James is trying to say in chapter 3, right? I mean, it, it feels silly to try to make James more clear than he already is. And so what I would like to do in our time is instead of trying to clarify what James is saying, because I think that he's perfectly clear, I'd like to look at some things, consider some things that may have been in James's mind, that may have been in the mind of the people who originally read and heard this letter, that may not be in our minds all the time when we read this letter. And when we, when we have this book in one hand, we might not have these things in the other hand. And if we do, it might, might give a little more weight to these words in our imagination. So first, what I'd like to do is just read these verses. We're going to look, actually track it back and look at one through eight, uh, and we're going to read through, and I'll offer a few comments, and then we're going to look at some of those things that might uh, blow this book up a little bit in our imagination. So James chapter one, starting in verse one. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, to, to Jews, to descendants of these 12 tribes of Israel who are, who are spread out all over the place and have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. I write this book to you. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He says, count it joy. Calculate it joy. No matter how it feels, tally it in the benefits column. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's like hitting the gym. When, when, you, when you meet resistance and you push through, you get stronger. So testing leads to steadfastness, endurance. The, the Greek word literally means to remain under. That, that you can remain under more pressure for longer. That you are made stronger by that testing. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That as you put your faith in gear and get out on the road, and things get tough, and things get scary, and things get messy, man, to, to persevere on that road, let that road follow that path all the way to the end. Because if you let it have its full effect, the place that you will arrive is the destination that God has for you, which is completion, perfection, looking like his son. And... and Put a pin in that because we're going we're gonna to open that up later. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. He says, okay, you're not going to do this on your own. You'll need wisdom. And so don't, don't, just, don't just wish you had wisdom. Don't try to just drum up whatever you think is wisdom. If you can't put a, a, a Bible verse next to it, make sure that it's God's wisdom because it might just be yours. And certainly, for heaven's sake, don't go with the course of the day and the wisdom of this world, the Cheetos and the Gushers, if you were here a couple of weeks ago. You know, make sure that you are asking God for his wisdom because you'll need it if you're going to do this. And here comes the boom. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And I think the question that, that James is bringing up here is, are you asking for wisdom for an area of life and then being faithful in that area of life? Are you sinning in that area of life? Oftentimes we come to this word doubt and we linger a little bit too long on this question of, you know, am I asking confidently enough? And friends, confidence is good. Confidence reflects a right understanding of what God is like. If you're asking God confidently, that means that you understand that he's good, that he's all powerful, that he can do what you're asking, that he delights in giving good things to his children. So confidence is good. But I also think that Mark 9, 24 I think that's an appropriate prayer for the Christian. In Mark 9, 24, and this man is looking at Jesus, and he needs something from Jesus. And he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I, I trust you. Just help my feeble confidence. I think that that's an appropriate prayer for the Christian. I, I think that that also reflects a right understanding of what God is like. To say that, oh, yeah, I'm asking and I trust, but I, I need, if I'm even going to ask confidently, I need you to come in and, and give me, a, just buttress my confidence and help me even to ask. I, I think God's okay with that. I think that that reflects a right understanding of what God is like. Remember, James is concerned with action. For, for James and, and really all of the New Testament writers, I could take you to a dozen places in Paul. The, 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 the idea of faith and faithfulness are always joined at the hip. 
The, the, the phrase, show me your faith and show me your faithfulness are always joined at the hip. If you are full of faith, you should be faithful. This thing that's working into your heart should be working out in your life. And so I think that James is really getting, getting at, are you asking God for wisdom in an area and then turning around and engaging in that area in a way that denies the person that you just asked? Are you being faithful there? Are you being faithless there? When you ask, you act as if there is a God. When you sin, you act as if there is no God. If you're doing both, you have a split personality. You're double-minded. And he says, don't think for a second you're getting anything. Now, that's not to say that there's no place for stumbling, for, for repentance, for confession, for forgiveness, and all those sorts of things. But, but James is saying, man, if you're asking God for wisdom in an area, you should be doing everything you can to walk in faithfulness in that area. If you don't believe he's there, why are you asking? If you do believe he's there, why are you sinning? The, the two can't go together. And so James issues us this challenge, ask in faith, ask in faithfulness without any functional doubting. But that's it, right? I mean, we look at these eight verses, it's right there, uh, consider it joy, it's, it's perfecting you, ask for wisdom, don't doubt. Simple book, simple message. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time, because that was like 10 minutes, and you can't have a 10-minute ser sermon, at least not in Baptist circles, and certainly not in this church, uh, and I want to make sure that you guys get your money's worth. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is consider some of these things that might blow these words up a little bit. And I want to start by considering a word that's not in these verses, and it's the word Christ. Now, it's there behind Jesus' name, but I'm not talking about behind Jesus' name. I'm talking about after James' name. And some of you are probably thinking, well, James, that, that word has no business being there after James's name. And you're right. But there are some things that would almost lead us to expect to see that word after, G, or after James's name. On the one side, you kind of had the man on the street, maybe the average church attender who, who sometimes speaks as if, sometimes acts as if, and maybe actually thinks that Christ is Jesus's last name. And if that was the case, then you would have Jesus Christ, Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and his half-brother, James Christ. But, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name, and so James wouldn't have it. Christ is a very storied, very, very special title. And so James wouldn't have had it. But on the other side of things, you might have somebody like a historian who would expect that title to be there behind James's name, James's name for other reasons. And this is why. The story of the Old Testament, the story of the Bible, is a story about God's, God's interaction with his good creation. Right? The, the, the plan that God has for his good creation. And a central figure in that story is the nation of Israel. And so, so one of God's central characters and a vehicle for what God was doing in his good creation in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel. And so the Old Testament, Old Testament is primarily concerned with the story of this nation. And so when you come into the end of the Old Testament, the end of Old Testament history, you see this group of people coming back to the land that God had given them. Now, God had, had appointed for them to be taken out of their land by a foreign empire because of their faithlessness and their idolatry. But you get to the end of the Old Testament, and you see them being brought back to their land. And they're struggling. 
You know, they're struggling for, for restoration. They're struggling for repentance. And even though they're back in their land, they're struggling under the rule of foreign empires. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years after this, you would have had faithful Israelites who faithfully read their scriptures and were hoping for the day when God would set things right, when he would vindicate his purposes, when he would restore his people and would set a faithful Israelite as a ruler over the nations. And the term for that faithful Israelite was Messiah. And there's a lot of backstory here. Don't have time to get into it. But the word was Messiah. The title was Messiah, which means anointed one, chosen one. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek word for Messiah is Christ. So in this word Christ, you have encapsulated the hope that God would set things right by setting one faithful Israelite as a ruler through whom the entire world would come to know the rule and the wisdom and the word of God. And so that's the end of the Old Testament story. And now be between the Old Testament, the last event that you see in the Old Testament and, and the first events that you see in the New Testament, there's about 500, 600 years between. And in that time, some very defining events happened in the life of this nation. One in particular is referred to as the Maccabean Revolt, which happened about 165 years before Jesus is born. This is what happened. And don't try to follow all the names. Don't try to follow all the titles. If you want to get all that stuff, you can come to the DU New Testament class in the spring, and we can do all that kind of business. Just follow the story. So about 165 years before Jesus. So they come back to, to their land. The Israelites come back to their land about 600 years before Jesus. When you get to the New Testament, they've had a series of empires ruling over them. When you get to the New Testament, it's Rome, right? The, the group right before Rome, the empire right before Rome that was ruling over the Israelites was Syria. And during this time, and, and people debate the reasons why this happened, and people kind of tell the story a little bit differently. But during this time, the Syrian king comes to Israel, and, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he walks up to the temple. And the temple is the center of Jewish life, the center of Jewish faith and worship. It is God's house. And this king comes to the temple and he slaughters a pig and he sprinkles the blood of that pig on the altar at the temple, even though the pig is an unclean animal and the altar is part of the temple, which is supposed to be the most ceremonially clean and holy place in all the world. And then he, he walks into the holy place, walks through the holy place, throws back the curtain to the most holy place when nobody was supposed to go in that room except one guy, the high priest, once a year after he had jumped through several hoops to make sure that he was ceremonially clean enough to go in there. And as you can imagine, there was a group of devout Jews that lost their minds. How dare you? You can't do that. That's God's house. And it sparked a revolt. And among these revolutionaries, there was a man named Mattathias. Don't worry about the name. And he had five sons. This family retreats into the wilderness to kind of game plan and get things together. A year later, one of Mattathias' sons named Judas, the only name you need to remember, leads an army of Jews back to Jerusalem. And, and they wage this, this guerrilla warfare, and they, they fight back against the Syrians, and they, they repel them, and they expel them from Jerusalem. They take back the temple, and the series of events that unfold after that lead to the first bit of independence that they've had in hundreds of years. 
It's a very significant event in the life of this people. Now, Judas had a nickname. He was referred to as Judas Maccabeus. And Maccabeus comes from the Hebrew word meaning hammer. He was Judas the hammer. I mean, this is, this is the kind of guy that you want to you follow into battle. Judas the hammer, somebody who is going to smash through challenges and challengers until we get to victory. And this became very formative for the Israelite imagination. This, is, this became a picture of how they imagined God would move to establish his kingdom. This became a picture of, of how they imagined the type of person that God would use to establish his kingdom. Put a pen in that. So Judas, not too shortly after, is killed. I mean, no, no matter how, how good you are with this thing, no matter how brave, no matter how strong you are, you still die. So the hammer is killed, and he is succeeded by his brother. And then his brother is killed, and he's succeeded by another brother. And the thing that's important to remember here, the thing that's important to understand is, again, this is formative for this group of people. This governs the way that they think. And these, these movements of revolt and these messianic attempts, if somebody looked and said, I think that this might be the guy that God is going to use to establish his kingdom, that I think that this might be this anointed one who's going to establish God's kingdom, you put him out front, and if he falls and there's still momentum, man, you grab his brother. You, you grab somebody and put him in a spot because in their mind, the movement is more important than the man. And so the movement must move on. And then about, about 200 years after that, Rome is now in charge. The, the Israelites have, have, have lost this independence that they won at, at the hand of the Maccabean family. Rome is in charge. And there is this, this Jewish carpenter who is wandering around the streets of Galilee and around the streets of Capernaum saying, hey, God's kingdom is here. And he told, he told weird stories about how the kingdom was like a, a guy throwing a net out and, and a pearl and a guy throwing seed on different kinds of soil. But he taught with authority. And his followers, his immediate followers, actually thought that maybe this, this was the Christ. They believed that he was this anointed one that was going to establish God's kingdom. But, but he didn't muster up an army and go challenge Rome. Instead, he kind of, he kind of challenged his own people. He said, look, you, you were supposed to be salt and light for the nations. You were supposed to be looking for every opportunity to hammer them. You, you were supposed to show God to them, but you've been holding them at, at arm's length. It seems as if your salt has lost its saltiness. It seems like you've been hiding your light under a basket. And so he, he taught with authority and he did mighty works and he actually gained a pretty big following. People came from all over to see what he would do and to, to hear what he would say. People went to extraordinary lengths just to touch his clothes. And then because of jealousy, because of his teaching, because of this message to, to love your enemies instead of looking for every opportunity to hammer your enemies, a group of his own people trumped up charges against him and sent him to a cross, and he died. And then within a few months, there was this bold following of thousands trumpeting his call, trumpeting his cause. 
Now, now, a historian might look at this, the, the events of the gospel, the events of, of Acts, the things that I just told you, and think, well, maybe what happened is that James was thrust into his brother's role, that, that James was picked up and he, he grabbed the momentum that his, his brother had started, that he picked up the movement for his brother because the movement is more important than the man, and that he picked up the mantle for his dead brother. And in that case, you would expect to see in these verses, James. Christ, the brother of Jesus. But that's not what you see. And that's because there was no role for James to step into. James saw his brother resurrected the son of God in power and ascend to the father and to his rightful rule over the church, over the kingdom, and over creation. There was no mantle for James to pick up. Jesus never dropped the mantle. He picked up the mantle, carried it through death, and burst out the other side. Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But... James saw that same brother, and please think of your own trials. James saw that same brother hungry, thirsty, misunderstood. Have you ever felt like if somebody, just, if that person just understood where I was coming from, they wouldn't have such a big problem with me. He saw that same brother misunderstood. He saw that, that same brother threatened accused, alienated, and abandoned? He, he saw that same brother betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed by somebody that you thought you could trust? He saw that same brother beaten, mocked, insulted, and crucified. A, a slow, painful death absent of any dignity. But after James saw the risen Jesus, he came to understand that it was precisely in that, not, not aside from that, not apart from that, but in those trials, on that cross, that Jesus had won the most decisive victory in human history over sin and death itself. Don't you think that that completely reshaped the way that James understood trials? Don't you think that, that that redefined the meaning of the word victory itself for James? And you have to understand this. Otherwise, the words that's in these verses will seem absolutely patronizing. They will seem absolutely belittling. Oh, yeah, no, it's not that big a deal. I know you're going through trials, but, you know, silver linings, it's okay. It's not that bad. Some people in this room, I'm sure of it, have endured incredible storms, Horrific trials. And James doesn't belittle that. James is just trying to help you understand, look, I, I get that. But I saw what my brother walked through, and that was the victory. When you are faithful as you walk through trials, you are following in the footsteps of the Savior. There's nothing belittling in that. When Randy finished his sermon last week, he, he brought up Psalm 15, and he talked about the, the type of person that gets to experience life with God. 
You know, the, the type of person that gets to experience that. And there's a bunch of attributes listed there, that, what they do with their speech, what they do with their actions, what they do with their money, what they do in life. At the very end of that psalm, it says, that person cannot be moved. That person is unshakable. That's what God wants for you. That's what God has for you. The, the, the call of the Christian, the, the, the point of the gospel is not to make a group of people who can barge through life, crashing through every obstacle in their path. The call of the gospel is to create a people who are unshakable, indestructible, no matter what hits you. To, to be a people who are like the king, who, who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who constantly walked through trials. And even as he went to the cross for you and I, and even as the weight of sin and evil was laid on him, even as he was hit with the cosmic sledgehammer, didn't budge. And that steadfastness is what God wants for you. And, and listen, not budging does not mean that he didn't hurt. And not budging does not mean that he didn't call out in that hurt. Not budging doesn't mean that he didn't ask God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. He, he did do those things, and so can you. Hey, look, friends, in your trials, God says, I, I know you hurt. I know you have questions. Not budging means that even though he hurt, and even though he had questions, and even though he called out, he remained perfectly faithful to the path that God had for him. Not budging doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That's why you have to count it joy. That's why you have to calculate it joy. That's why you have to think until you can acknowledge that God is at work in it. Not budging doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. A lot of you may know, probably do know the, the words to uh, the, the popular Christian hymn, It is well with my soul. It's a very popular hymn, well known. Uh, I have the, the first verse for you guys. It says, when peace like a river attends my way, when, when peace is flowing steady through my life, or when sorrows are billowing through my heart, deep, gut-wrenching sorrows are tossing around in my chest, in my gut, whatever my lot in life, you have taught me to say, you, you have taught me to, to calculate, to consider, to think, and to be able to say, it is well with my soul. And some of you may know the background to this hymn. The, the man who wrote this hymn was financially ruined by the great Chicago fire of 1871. And then as he was trying to put back the pieces of his life for his family, lost all four of his girls in a shipwreck. And then turned around and wrote these words. And I am absolutely sure that as he was writing these words down, there were tears and there were questions. 
There's nothing belittling about this. There is an incredible amount of spiritual fortitude that is on display here. And this is the heritage of the Christian. Jesus constantly tried, constantly opposed, but waking up early, praying to the Father, and then walking in faithfulness even up to the cross. James, trying to, trying to navigate this, this Christian movement and constantly battling uh, divisions and opposition and, and persecution. But remember, remember the nickname that Randy told us about last week? He was always at the, at the, at the temple praying. It's like called him camel knees. He was kneeling in prayer so much. Constantly tried, but constant in prayer, walking in faithfulness, not perfect faithfulness like his brother, faithfulness that maybe looks like your and my attempt at faithfulness, but walking in faithfulness, prayerful faithfulness, even to the point that they picked him up and threw him off the roof of the temple and then beat him to death with clubs. And then centuries and centuries and centuries of nameless, ordinary followers of the king who have remained prayerfully faithful even when life was collapsing in around them, who, who learned to say, even when they had to choke on the words, it is well with my soul. This is the entire heritage of the Christian. And Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a, 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 another picture of this. It says that because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus has accomplished by, by conquering sin and death, by establishing God's kingdom, that you have held out to you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That what God offers you, what God holds out to you is a kingdom that can't be shaken. It says one more time, God is going to come in and invade human history in such a way that, there, I mean, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be vindication, there's going to be righting of wrongs, but he's going to shake things up in such a way that it means the removal of the things that can be shaken. And so if you want to inherit that kingdom, if you want to inhabit that unshakable kingdom, you have to become unshakable. We have to become a people like the king, who even when he walked through constant trials, was perfectly faithful. And, and the Bible is perfectly clear that you are not going to do that on your own. You are not going to sit in this seat if you're a visitor, if you really didn't, don't have this Christian thing figured out. You're not going to just pick this up and say, yeah, I'm going to do that for myself. The Bible is clear that the only way that you will do that is by uniting yourself with that unshakable king. But by joining yourself to him through faith, by being found full of his spirit, drawing on his power, searching his word, leaning on his people— and asking for his own wisdom. You know, when you put your faith in gear, when you take your faith out of park, when you actually start doing something with this thing, things get messier. You know, th there's much more of a likelihood of meeting aggression on the road. There's much more of a likelihood of, of colliding with others on the road. There's a lot more chance of things breaking down on the road. But it's only by enduring that path, braving that path, staying on that path that you will arrive at the destination that God has for you, which is completion, perfection, looking like his son, having an indestructible life. 
And there's a lot of things that we could have talked about this morning that we didn't. We could have talked about what God's doing in suffering, and uh, we could have talked about his sovereignty and temptation, and we might hit on some of those themes when we get later in uh, chapter 1 in James. But this morning, I would just have you consider what James would have considered. That, That although the life of picking up the hammer and smashing through challenges might be attractive, it's not what the king is like. If Jesus would have come in the name of God's kingdom with the hammer, we all would have fallen under it. But instead, he went under the hammer for your and my sake. I would have you consider what James would have considered, that that victory by being tried, horribly tried sometimes, and then being found faithful in that trial is the pattern of the king. And if so with the king, how much more for the servants? And if Jesus was tried and suffered for you, you can trust Jesus in your trials and your suffering. Let's pray. Father, it, 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 is, it, is, it wears me out a little bit to, to know that although we can technically call what we find in this book good news, that we will probably, not until we stand face to face with you, really understand the goodness of this news in every area of life. But very simply, I, I thank you and I praise you for the goodness that this message means for when we're tried that there can still be victory in that trial and that Jesus was tried for our sakes because we're not always faithful in trials. We're not always faithful when it's easy. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would sink that picture deeply into our hearts to learn what it means that the one who could have come wielding the hammer instead went under it for our sakes. I pray that we would be so moved by that picture of faithfulness that we would come to love you and your son so much that we would count it joy to walk the way he did faithfully through trials. I pray that for everybody in this room, who has gone through a trial, who is getting ready to go through a trial, who might be working through and walking through a trial right now, that you would pour wisdom into their lives. I pray that you would give them a fire to get where wisdom is, to get in your word, to get in prayer, to be with your people. I pray that you would do all of this work by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.